Welcome to the podcast of the Consortium for History of Science, Technology, and Medicine. I'm Balbak Ashrafi. Today is November 22nd, 2023, and I'm speaking with Rina Selya, who is the archivist and the associate director of the program in history of medicine at Cedar sinai Medical Center. And she's talking with me today because she's also the author of Salvador Luria, an immigrant biologist in Cold War America, which is published by the MIT Press. Thank you for joining me, Rina. Thank you so much for having me, Babak. It's a pleasure to be here. Can you tell us a little bit about your background and how you came to this project? Absolutely. So I was trained as a historian of science. And many years later, I also went back to school and became an archivist. And so in thinking through this project, I was keenly aware not only of the historical questions that I wanted to ask, but also the way that different sources could be brought together to weave together a story about a single individual who, on the one hand, was very unusual in the fact that he was a member of a elite group of scientists who really established a number of biological disciplines in the 40s and the 50s in the United States. And on the other hand, he was a man of his time and that the stories that happened to him, the things that, that he encountered were, were part of much larger historical trends, both in the history of science and in American history. And I was very fortunate that early in my graduate career, I was looking for a topic in the history of biology. And originally, I was interested in looking at James Watson, who's a very visible figure in the history of molecular biology. And my advisor, the late, great Edward Mendelssohn, said, well, you know, James Watson's PhD advisor was this man named Salvador Luria, who lived here in Boston and was a good friend of mine. Why don't you look in his autobiography and see if he says anything about Watson? So I dutifully went to the library and checked out Luria's autobiography. And about 50 pages in, I thought, I'm not interested in Watson at all. This man is so intriguing. And Luria's autobiography actually divides his life into very discrete parts. So he has chapters on his scientific life and he has chapters on his political activism and he has chapters on his personal life. And I thought there should be a way to integrate those stories into one cohesive narrative because we're all complex people, right? And you can't isolate your professional life from what's happening in your personal life, from what's happening in, in the world. And so I was able to collect a lot of different documents, some of which Luria didn't have access to himself, to tell the story of his life. And Nathaniel Comfort talks about the project of writing biographies that your subject would recognize, even if it's not what the subject themselves would have written about their life. And so I think that because I was able to take Luria's correspondence and speaking with so many of his former students and colleagues and integrate those into his FBI file, his Immigration and Naturalization Service papers that I was able to get through Freedom of Information Act requests to really tell a story that even if he might not have necessarily agreed with all of the things that I said, he would at least say, this is a representation of my life. And it's actually been very gratifying for me since the book was published to hear from people who knew Luria, who've told me that they recognize him in my portrait. In your book, you describe Salvador Luria as a young medical student in Italy with a strong interest in biology and physics and math. In 1938, he had to leave Italy for Paris because Jews were banned from Italian schools. In 1940, he had to flee again from Paris on a bicycle ahead of the advancing German troops. He eventually made his way to Portugal, where he was able to secure transit to New York City, 
What was it about Luria's early scientific career that brought him to the attention of others who could help him come to America and continue his career in science? That's an excellent question. So Luria started his scientific career as a medical student in Turin, and he had the opportunity in his second year to work in the laboratory of Giuseppe Levy, who was the director of the histology and anatomy lab at the University of Turin. And Luria was joined there by two other promising medical students. One was Renato Dolbeco. The other was Rita Levi-Montalcini. All three of them eventually made their way to the United States, and all three eventually won Nobel Prizes. And the thing that Luria pointed to as what he really got out of his time in Levy's lab was the ability to design experiments in a very clear and logical way so that they would be interpreted in a very open and obvious way. And even though Levy was working in a vastly different field than Luria eventually moved into, that standard of scientific thought and behavior was something that really laid the groundwork for Luria's later successes. And because he wasn't particularly interested in a career as a physician, even though he was in medical school, he had a very good friend from childhood named Ugo Fano, who was studying physics at the time. And Fano would tell Luria about all the things that he was learning in physics, and Luria was extremely intrigued by by all of those ideas. And so he started looking for an area in medicine that would allow him to explore those ideas in physics. And that place was radiology because it used the tools that had been developed using physics ideas. And so when Luria moved to Rome to do his internship in radiology, Fano actually helped him arrange to get a research position in Enrico Fermi's lab. And so Luria, by virtue of these personal connections, eventually ended up in one of the most prestigious physics laboratories in the world at the time, where he encountered a number of luminaries from the physics world, but where he also learned to think like a physicist. And so it was the combination of this ability to design beautiful experiments and the ability to hold different scientific approaches in his mind that really set him apart. And so when he arrived in the United States after this stint in Paris at the Institut de Radium and the Pasteur Institute, he had impressed enough people that he had these letters of introduction, particularly from Fermi, that uh, opened a lot of doors for him in the United States. And those doors were by no means guaranteed. There were many, many scientists who were coming out of war-torn Europe who weren't given those opportunities and who really struggled. But because of his youth and his connections and his training, Luria was able to move pretty easily into the American scientific world. In 1943, Luria secured a position at Indiana University in Bloomington, where watching a colleague gamble inspired for Luria a new experiment. What was that experiment? What was its significance at that time? And how did its significance play out in the subsequent history of biology and genetics? Luria and his colleague, Max Delbruck, spent a lot of their time researching two related organisms. One is the bacteriophage, the viruses that attack bacteria, and the other are the bacteria themselves. And over the course of their investigations into how the bacteriophage, the viruses, behave when they encounter the bacteria, they noticed that at times the bacteria would be resistant to infection. And so they noticed this and kind of put it in their back pocket because it was a little difficult to untangle how to experimentally determine whether that resistance that they had observed was the result of spontaneous mutations 
in the bacterial genome that just kind of happened and would be evident only when they encountered viruses, or if those mutations and that resistance was as a result of exposure to the bacteriophage, the viruses. And the difference between those two is one is a Lamarckian view of inheritance that traits would emerge as a result of encounters with the environment, and the other is a more modern genetic almost Darwinian understanding of how evolution progresses and how organisms respond to their environment in that the mutations spontaneously occur, they're random, and that you only know them because you've encountered that virus. And so that was a really difficult thing to untangle. And Luria and Delbrook had thought, you know, this would be a good thing to, to investigate down the line. So when Luria then is at a faculty dance on a Saturday night in a snowy January evening in January 1943, he saw somebody playing with a slot machine and realized that an unprogrammed slot machine, that is one that's not designed to not give very many payouts, could be used as an analogy to spontaneous mutations, right? So he realized that if mutations were as a result of exposure to the virus, that is, that the resistance would arise as a result of exposure to the virus, then you would expect to see a pretty even distribution of mutations and resistance across all of the bacteria that you're looking for. But if that resistance was the result of random mutations, then you may get the same number of resistant cells, but you'll see them in clusters, in jackpots, if you will. And so he realized that he would be able to look at this experimentally. He could set up petri dishes where he would seed bacteria, you know, from all from the same culture, and then introduce viruses and take a look and literally count on the petri dishes how many spontaneous resistant mutations he would be able to observe. So Sunday morning he gets up, he sets up this experiment, he's very excited, and then he has to wait for two days. And on Tuesday morning, indeed, he did discover that he had these clusters of mutations rather than an even distribution. And so that really provided statistical experimental proof that bacteria, like other organisms, undergo spontaneous mutations, not as a result of exposure to the environment, but just because that's the way genes behave. And so he was fortunate that Delbruck was his collaborator, and the two of them really worked out both the experimental design, because they repeated it multiple times, and also the theoretical and statistical underpinnings of this experiment, which later came to be called the fluctuation test. And that article was published in the Journal of Genetics, called Genetics, in 1943, and it is the second most cited article in that journal from the 1940s. It really um, has had a very profound impact on the field of bacterial genetics. Some have argued that it's actually the founding document in the field of bacterial genetics. And what's really powerful about this is that it's really simple to do. So high school and college biology courses can reproduce this experiment. And it also had a wide variety of applications from looking at particular relationships between strains of viruses and and their bacterial hosts, but also in understanding the larger problem of 
antibiotic resistance that was already emerging even in the early years of the antibiotic era. So it's a very important paper, and uh, it was a very creative paper at the time, and it's still one that is considered a classic in, in genetics today. After Bloomington, Luria moved to Urbana, Illinois for a few years, and then in 1959, he moved to MIT, where he transformed the biology department and the teaching of biology. What did this involve, and what was Luria's role more broadly in training the next generation of biologists and virologists? Luria was recruited to MIT in 1959 because the department had previously been focused on developmental biology and biophysics, but they were rapidly losing students, and there was really no kind of intellectual cohesion in the department itself. And so the MIT administration was looking for a person who was really at the forefront of the new areas in biology, that is microbiology and molecular biology, both of which Luria had had a significant role in. And they wanted to also think creatively about new ways to teach biology, focusing more on structure and function rather than development. And so Luria was their number one choice to come to start trying to remake the Department of Biology. Luria was really, at that point, ready to leave the University of Illinois at Urbana-Champaign, in large part because his wife, Zella, who was a psychologist, was prevented from getting a position at the University of Illinois because of nepotism laws that had been put into place in the Depression, partly to prevent brothers from capturing too many jobs at the university, but at that point, mid to late 1950s, it really just prevented women from being appointed to positions at the university if their husbands happened to work there as well. And so because both Lurias were invested in Zella's professional success as well as in Salvador's, uh, they decided that they needed to leave the University of Illinois. And so Boston, with its many, many universities and many intellectual opportunity, was really a wonderful place for both of them to go. And Zella went on to a long career at Tufts University in the psychology department there. So Luria at MIT set out to recruit a number of colleagues whom he knew from in the molecular biology and microbiology communities. And over the course of the next three to four years, he really built up the faculty in that department as well. And then they changed the way that the introductory biology course was taught so that it focused a lot more on microbiology and molecular biology. And they also set out to recruit graduate students who were specifically interested in those areas as well. One of the first that they recruited was a young man named David Baltimore. He eventually left to finish his PhD elsewhere, but he came back as a postdoctoral fellow and early career professor in the 1970s with great success as well. And around this time also, Luria earlier in the 1950s had published the first textbook for college virology courses. This meant that it was virology as its own standalone academic discipline, not interested in epidemiology or in, in just the medical understanding of viruses. And so he brought that expertise and that focus as well into the teaching and administration that he did at MIT. You explained earlier that you were interested in describing the different aspects of Luria's life together as a whole. So Luria got involved in politics and political causes as soon as he arrived in the United States. 
He was a subject of investigation by the FBI throughout the McCarthy era and the Cold War. He was denied a visa for travel abroad. He was blacklisted. What kinds of activism was Luria involved in in the United States? This is my favorite topic to talk about, <laughs> having to do with Luria's life. He was so grateful to be a citizen in a democracy where he was able to voice his opinions and really use his votes the sake of the causes that he believed in. But he was also incredibly grateful to be able to speak out about things that were really important to him. And so early in his career, already in Bloomington, he became interested in labor issues, making sure that all workers had a fair wage, had time off, and those kinds of things. And he also was very, very invested in the question of segregation. And he was concerned about the fact that there were no Black professors at the Indiana University at the time. He worked with local institutions to try to desegregate some of the restaurants in downtown Bloomington. And he brought that sensibility about social justice, racial justice, and equality into the scientific community. So in 1955, Luria was one of the vice presidents of the American Association for the Advancement of Science. And that year, the AAAS was scheduled to meet in Atlanta, which was still a segregated city. And you can see it in the announcement for the meeting that was published in Science Magazine that they said, you know, because of local laws, anyone who's Black who's attending this meeting will need to stay in separate hotels, eat in separate restaurants. Even though our meeting spaces will be integrated, we're really sorry, but you're going to have to stay in these other places. And Luria and a number of his colleagues were really torn up about this, and they really struggled. One of the sections of the AAAS, the anthropology section, actually canceled its meeting because they couldn't justify asking people scientists whose work was judged based on its merits and not based on the color of the skin of the person who was doing it to come to a city where they would be treated as second-class citizens. And over the summer of 1955, particularly after the murder of Emmett Till, Luria really, really struggled with this. And there are a number of letters back and forth between the leadership of the, the AAAS and Luria's colleagues and some of the people who are in his group. And eventually, they Luria did decide to attend. And one of the things that he made sure that happened at that meeting was a resolution that they would never again meet in a segregated city. And actually, the American Association for the Advancement of Science did not meet again in the Old South until 1990. So they really took that lesson. And Luria didn't see these questions as separate from his scientific interests, right? His desire to serve the scientific community and his desire to make sure that everyone was treated equally meshed together beautifully because those two things were not mutually exclusive. And while he started by trying to make sure that his local communities were as integrated and fair and equal as possible, both on the university level and on the larger scientific community, those interests soon evolved over the course of the 1960s to really work very, very hard on behalf of the cause for peace. And it started as a group of scientists who were writing to counter ideas that, you know, nuclear proliferation was the answer to all of America's problems. He really like agitated very hard the test ban treaty and those kinds of large governmental level decisions. But ultimately his focus became protesting against the Vietnam War. And what's really interesting to see in the documents is where the glimmers of, you know, as scientists 
he felt that that he and his peers had an extra responsibility because science gave them the ability to approach things rationally, to apply logic, and also to always be focused on the service of mankind. And so no matter what type of research they did, they also had this larger responsibility to make sure that the world was a good place for everyone. As Luria worked in science and on issues of prejudice and freedom and peace, can you say more about the view that he developed about the responsibility and limits of science and scientists to address these issues? As I mentioned, he really felt that scientists had an extra responsibility to speak out on issues having to do with safety and peace and freedom because those ideas were so bound up in his vision of what science should and could do for humanity. But he also was really clear about not asking scientists to solve social problems. And so the idea that you could disprove genetic differences between racial groups, for example, he felt would be abdicating the responsibility to solve social problems having to do with the differences between racial groups to scientists and just saying, well, you know, if there are genetic differences, then there's really nothing we can do about it. But what he instead, what he said was, you know what, we need to be really clear about defining what is a social problem and what is a scientific problem. And scientists should absolutely vote for the people who can solve those social problems. They should make sure that there are laws passed that will solve those social problems. But don't expect science to provide the answers to those social problems. Your book ends with a picture of an elderly Luria. To my eye, he looks kind of fierce. He's wearing a t-shirt that says, Question Authority. What does your study of Luria's life in science and politics teach us about some of the issues that we face now? So I really love that picture. And I actually have another version of it where he's smiling slightly, um, but I couldn't get a high enough resolution for it to go into the book. Another comment about that picture, I put that picture up at a talk that I gave that Zella Luria was able to attend. And I put it up on the screen and from the back of the room, she says, oh, that shirt. Because she really didn't like it. And he insisted on wearing it in that photograph that was actually published in uh, Time magazine. So a little bit of a you know personal touch to that image. You know, I think Luria's life in science and politics teaches us several things. One is that scientists are not isolated in an ivory tower ever, <laughs> but particularly today. And with the major, major issues that we're facing that touch upon science, whether it's climate change, whether it's the pandemic and issues around vaccination and public health, there's really a need for people with expertise to to be visible and to be vocal. I think that there aren't a lot of individuals like Luria who embrace that kind of public role anymore. And, you know, some of that has to do with the way that American society has changed dramatically in the years since he's passed away in 1991. But I think that his story can be an inspiration for other scientists, not necessarily to speak out on the causes that he cared about the most, but 
to understand that if that as a scientist and as a citizen, you're a complete human being, you know, as I mentioned before, and that if there's something that's important to you that your scientific expertise and perspective can contribute to, then those are things that should be embraced and amplified rather than keep trying to keep them separate. That's great. Thank you, Rena. Thank you for sharing your work and your perspectives with us. My pleasure. Thank you for having me. Rina Salia's book is Salvador Luria, an Immigrant Biologist in Cold War America, published by the MIT Press. You can find more resources for exploring this topic and others at www.chstm.org. This has been a podcast from the Consortium for History of Science, Technology, and Medicine.